This episode is entitled, We Fade to Green. And my guest today is, well, I decided to turn the mic around for this episode and let myself be the guest. My interviewer is Jane Hermstedt, a great friend I have known since college. If you'd like to find out all about Jane, please tune in to the episode entitled The Travel Bug. And now I'll pass it on to Jane. Hi, Henriette. Hi, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm super excited to talk to you about your book. I read it and so much of the story of We All Fade to Green resonated with me. As you know, we share a Hungarian heritage and I think both have that experience of growing up with some cross-cultural experiences. And so reading the story and seeing these characters and the Hungarian language and the Hungarian food and like the, the crossing of cultures and how that showed up with the grandparents arriving in America, like really was close to home for me. So I'm really excited to talk to you about where you're coming from with the story and some of the themes that you had in it. So just to jump right in, what inspired you to write about this and how autobiographical was it for you? So the story, is, I mean, you know, you know, my, I think you even know my parents. Um, they are, I mean, I know your mom and, and we have, we both have very Hungarian moms and <laughs> you have a, you have a yes. dad, but I have a Hungarian dad as well. Um, and I'm an only child. So for years, I've been trying to convince my parents to move in with us or to move closer to us because I have decided to make a home in Hamburg, Germany. So I'm away from Kansas and away from my elderly parents. Um, And they've been very reluctant to leave their nice home. Interestingly, their home is now Kansas in Leewood, Kansas. And um, so, so that's how the book started, actually. I just started writing little notes and writing little stories, tiny little chapters that were meant to encourage my parents to move closer to us, to make them feel like it would be okay to be here. And so I would read these little chapters or segments of writings or pieces of writing to the kids. And, Mm. um, and I would just kind of read them to, to the kids and on the weekends. I mean, very often I write in the mornings and on the weekends, you know, my family sleeps in and Saturday morning I'll be up at seven and they'll wake up at 10. So that's usually when I write. Um, same thing on Sundays. Um, and so, you know, they'd, they'd get up and we'd have breakfast and I would just kind of read them what I had written. And, uh, and they just thought it was so funny. And then they, they actually added a lot of comments and had their own little suggestions uh, of, you know, how the characters could develop. And, and then it went from, from, from there. The characters are based on our family. So the whole story is told from the perspective of the middle child. And that is based on one of the twins. She technically is the middle child by two minutes. She is two minutes (laughs) younger than her brother. The little one is loosely based on our youngest daughter. And the son is loosely based on the, on our twin son. So um, on our oldest child. Um, the, the characters of the grandparents are based on my parents, but, but, you know, sort of these, and I really mean this, honestly, uh, they are based on, mm-hmm. um, I did not want to write anything autobiographical. 
and I, I wanted to sort of really explore this topic of parents growing older and what happens with that, you know, sort of what happens to elderly parents? Do they go to retirement homes? Do they move in with family? And if so, what happens then? What are the problems? What are the problems that can arise? And so I, I really wanted to make sure that it wasn't completely autobiographical. So, so, I, so I could also have freedom with it, you know, and, and wouldn't be limited to portraying these characters completely truthfully and, and, and autobiographically. And so you mentioned that the protagonist, the main character, is based on your daughter. So when you were writing in that voice, so it, it starts on her eighth birthday and it finishes about a year later, right, when she's about to turn nine and kind of planning her birthday parties, you have those as the bookends. When you're writing in that voice, did you get help from your, your daughter and your kids on how to channel an eight-year-old sort of voice or what? First of all, how did you write in that voice? And then secondly, why did you choose to tell the story from that perspective as opposed to one of the parents, for example? I can't answer that completely. For me, it was from the get-go, very important to write it from the perspective of one of the kids. Now I can't answer you why. It was just a feeling I wanted to write it from the perspective of one of the kids. Now, why did I write it from our middle child's uh, perspective? I think, <laughs> I think that really has to do with something autobiographical. Our, our daughter is actually named after my mother. And my mother has always, uh, uh, with no shame uh, <laughs> and with no uncertainty, been very clear about how this child is her favorite. This grandchild oh. is her favorite. Um, and so, you know, she's, I mean, this is so funny, Jane, right? I mean, I think that's also... I don't know. I, I can't imagine, for example, in Germany, a German grandmother ever admitting that she had a favorite. I just can't imagine it. And I think even in the States, it'd be a bit taboo. But yeah. I think in Hungarian culture, that <laughs> it, it, it's okay. Just, it's okay. Exactly. So, <laughs> so my mom's quite, you know, shameless about it. She's like, she just, she is my favorite. <laughs> so it's just kind of, you know, it's just one of those things. And so I think for me, it came from if I were to convince my parents to move in with us, it was going to have to be through their favorite grandchild. <laughs> that, to uh, yeah, that makes so much sense. And you had that in the story. I mean, that came out through Apu, who was very open about admitting that Stephen was his favorite and uh, unapologetic. So one of the things that I, I enjoyed about the story was some of these cultural things that I think came out really well. So you have Apu, who's very much who he is, right? He's gonna go get the mail in his underwear. And, <laughs> and he's, he, you know, there he's gonna admit that what's wrong with me having a favorite? So what? I love my granddaughter too, but I love, Steve, I love him in a different way. What's wrong with that? And very, very unapologetic about that. And I think that's very, it's cultural, like you're saying. I think it's also generational right and so I was actually wondering reading it now it's interesting to hear you say that there's this autobiographical element of it because when I read that I wondered a little bit if there was a gender statement that you were you were making in that story with this contrast because I think Apu and Naji come off quite sympathetic you know when he, when he makes these statements that are um, kind of culturally inappropriate or you know not PC 
where I, I think he's very sympathetic about the way that he does it. So it didn't seem like you were particularly critical of that as a as the author. So what are your thoughts on those kind of old school views that did come out through the story? Well, just just uh, real quick for the record, my dad does not get the mail in his underwear. So <laughs> <laughs> not that autobiographical. In case not yet. maybe he's just not there yet. In case in case anybody uh, is uh, listening who who knows them, you know, sort of he does not get the mail in his underwear. But um, actually, there there I had a German professor or a German professor that I knew. Uh, in college, I think you might have known him as well, because I think we went to his Oktoberfest in college, Jane. But anyway, oh, he, shall remain, okay. he shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> but he was known, he was notorious for going to get his uh, newspaper in a very, very short robe um, with apparently oh, no, under, no underclothing but I don't I don't know I, I never I was never uh you weren't you didn't witness this, 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 this thankfully <laughs> so, so to speak yeah <laughs> but but I but I did think more of him when when Oppu is going I actually more thought of this German professor who who was known for getting the mail in his well in sort of inappropriate clothing but yeah it is modeled on my dad in the sense that my father for example mows the lawn in a speedo um, I actually don't know if he still does this, but but he just always, you know, he would just mow the lawn in his speedo, and it's just kind of, ah, oh, you know, in this nice upper middle class neighborhood, right. just, you would just see the people walking their dogs and just kind of thinking, oh my goodness, what is this man doing? You know, sort of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's but it's true, and I mean that's that's terrible that we have these. Um, yeah, these preconceptions. But I didn't answer your question. So you were you were asking about sort of gender uh, issues and sort of some of the inappropriateness and the politically incorrectness. I mean, anybody who knows my father um, will tell you that he is an absolute nonconformist. He is he is inappropriate <laughs> a lot mm -hmm. of times. He is politically inappropriate. He is political correctness is just something completely foreign to him. He loves to provoke. He is in his language, in the subject matter, in, oh yeah, he, he, he crosses the line and questions it. But interestingly, I mean, anybody who knows my father will completely support me on this. My dad is the most open-minded, the most like sort of kind-hearted, helpful, democratic man I've ever known he's he's mm -hmm. he's purely genuinely he loves people he's interested in people he's you know he's totally open he'll take you for who you are but he will stick his foot in his mouth all the time so the thing is that people who know him kind of know that it's just all bark and no bite and people will know that he's just provoking he's just like waiting for you to get upset and then he just kind of goes <laughs> you know he, he has this like right. sort of, so so that too for example throughout his life my father you know he was a coach so he was always he was always into you know boys and how he wanted to have a son and sort of you know but that at the same time I never I'm, I'm his only daughter and he I was his princess I mean I was I was an absolute daddy's girl. And um, he, I think, was completely fulfilled in his 
position as a father to a, to mm-hmm. a girl, you know? Um, so that's what I mean. It's, it's sort of just a, it's just a little game that he plays. Right. And I feel like we see that in, in Apu a lot, but that meant, so hearing you describe that, maybe you were channeling some of that in the Apu character who's on the, on the one hand, just kind of good as gold and like has some clear morality which came out, there was a wonderful scene where all of the kids have their, their terrible night of getting in trouble. And I don't, I don't wanna you know, spoil it, but each, each of the three children goes off and has separately on the same night, like bad stuff happened that they have to work through. And the son ends up having Apu involved where he, he comes out and helps to make it right. And he has a very clear sense of, of right and wrong, going back to this kind of traditional old school morality that goes along with it, that you, you have to make your, you have to make right what was wrong here and was very directly involved in that. So you see that side of him. And at the same time, he's also swearing all over the place and offending the neighbors and, you know, <laughs> uh, t- telling people off. But, you know, it's, it's this, I think both sides of a person who's, like very, very good and decent at heart, but at the same time, not playing any games that in the US culture that I think that we superficially expect, right? These sort of social niceties. And probably my favorite scene in the whole book was this Apu versus the Homeowners Association. (laughs) I laughed out loud, Henriette, (laughs) when I kind of started to see where it was going with the HOA, with like the showdown. So you, you know, you've got these like traditional Hungarian grandparents, older who, who come into this suburban neighborhood and they kind of want to start doing some things and the, the neighborhood is not having it. And when they go to petition the HOA, all these things come out that, oh, by the way, we have all these complaints about you that we haven't shared. And, you know, there's you walking your cat and this thing with you getting the mail in your underwear and like, you know, they're not even there to talk about that. Right. And so it ends up being though, this, this kind of confrontation of, of cultures and generations where you have Apu being so direct and just calling BS on the HOA basically for another, like, at least I, I am who I am and what am I doing wrong here? and taking his breaks to go run around the block and come back and deal with the HOA again. And he conquers the HOA. So, uh, (laughs) I mean, a little bit of a spoiler, but he, it was such a wonderful moment of this like completely archetypal American institution. I mean, they have homeowners associations in other countries, but from what I've experienced, uh, the, the American version of it is like uniquely powerful. I mean, and I don't know if that's true based on your experiences, but I've never seen like the equivalent of the suburban HOA in the US mm. anywhere else where they're like, they just have Absolutely. so much control. I agree. You agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's totally. like, so like to have you choose this, like this particular um, space for this confrontation of cultures, I thought was, Fantastic. I mean, what, what was, what was behind that for you? Like why, why the HOA? Well, so, so right. So, so the thing is that sort of, you know, you asked me, well, how did the book come about? And I told you that, that it was, um, 
it grew out of my attempt to get my parents to move in with us. And so, of course, that would be in Germany, right? So that would be actually these Hungarian-American parents or grandparents moving to Germany. And I didn't want to have that. That would have been too close to home. So that's why I, I kind of twisted it around. And I thought, mm-hmm. what would it be like if had they stayed in Transylvania um, and I, you know, stayed in the U.S.? How would that be if they were moving into the U.S.? So that, that was also something that I consciously did to try to distance myself from it. And also because I think that I know American and Hungarian cultures way better. I feel it more than, than German culture. Mm. So I also wanted to, to write about something that I actually knew. And again, sort of um, the Apu, all the characters, but the Apu character as well is based on my father. But I don't, there, I don't think there's anything in the book that actually happened with my father. So, so you know, so the character, mm. how he acts, how he is, is based on my dad. But none of the things that happen actually uh, have actually happened with my father or has, has my father ever done. So, so that is, for example, one thing. In fact, let me just sort of make a quick note. Um, my parents reading this book were very confused because my mother said sort of, we never did that. <laughs> you know, sort of, so, so they, they, they sort of were confused. Like they, they identified, they, they recognized themselves in the characters, but said, but, but, we, that, but that never happened, you know, sort of. So they, they, they were confused by, oh, how, how truthful is this? How, to, to what extent is this autobiographical? And then your question about the homeowners association and sort of these cultural clashes, I wanted to, to I mean, this is humorous and it's still, I mean, I think the book is for, for the whole family. It's supposed to be a great read that you have as a family, um, certainly as an adult as well. But some of the, the culture clashes that I, that I discuss are actually, you know, painful uh, experiences. I mean, I have been confronted with these culture clashes my whole life, you know, sort of my parents were weird um, growing up. They weren't doing things the way the PTA or the mm-hmm. Homeowners Association or whatever these institutions would have wanted them to. So I was, you know, I think there's this, there's this, uh, there's this part in the book, there's a scene in the book, if you will. So this, the, the book is, the, the story is written from the perspective of the middle child and her mother. So the mother says, I'm, I'm, I'm done with making excuses for my parents. I, you know, sort of, they are mm-hmm. the way they are. Just take them or leave them and ask them. Don't ask me. You wrote it in the U.S. as a U.S. U.S.-based story. And I think there's some really good commentary on U.S. culture that comes out in it. So another area that struck me is the, the mother, right? So you have the mother character in the story who worked and then left work uh, to go take care of the kids and then went back to work and she's still kind of trying to have it all, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a scene in the story where, is it Margie or Margit? How do you pronounce it? Margit. Margit. So Margit wakes up to go to the bathroom and she sees that her mom is up super late working. And then the next morning she gets up for breakfast and mom has this perfect breakfast ready. And, you know, that she's, she's going to you know be the perfect career woman and also try to be the perfect mother. But then there are a lot of, of seams in it, right? So she's, not taking care of her appearance, which Margit is is very aware of that, you know, mom used to be pretty, 
and now she's like going gray and she's wearing her hair in a bun all the time and like what you know it seemed like um a commentary on this sort of American or Western ideal of I'm gonna have it all I'm gonna work I'm gonna be the perfect mom what were you trying to say in that space through the story well, I mean, I think that is autobiographical as well. Um, you know, aside from I, I, I'm not gray, <laughs> I haven't gone gray yet. But I think that that I can speak for a lot of women, you know, sort of a lot of our friends, a lot of women our age are going through that through that choice and through that dilemma of what am I going to be? Am I going to be mom? Am I going to be wife? Am I going to be career woman? Am I going to take care of myself? Am I going to, you know, sort of, I think that women today have a lot of choices. And I think that's great. Um, wouldn't want to have it any other way. But with those choices come a lot of responsibilities, a lot of pressure. Um, and it is a dilemma. And I just wanted to kind of portray that and um, yeah, like allow that to live and allow that to be out there. And, and, and possibly I think it was also my, my intent to let it be seen through a child's eye um, you know, yeah. oftentimes we, we speak of it from, from the point of view of feminism or, you know, sort of what do women want and you can do everything and you can do it and go get it. How do the kids see it? What, do, what would the kids say, um, you know, sort of as they watch their mother um, struggling? Um, so, so, I, so that was also my intent to portray it from the child's point of view. Yeah, that you've got Margit observing mom always trying to be efficient, right? We're going to be efficient with the move. And mom's always trying to be efficient with sleep too. And at eight <laughs> years old, Margit totally recognizes that that means that she just doesn't sleep enough. Right. But yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the perception on the kid's side is definitely right. still there. And isn't that true? I mean, I could, I mean, seriously, all the moms that I know who still work where do you, where do you get the time? I mean, where do you sort of, where are you going to cut corners? Well, you're going to cut corners on the time you take for yourself. Um, your showers are going to be less long, your time mm -hmm. spent on doing your makeup or your hair or your workouts or your whatever, that's going to be less. And, and, and what else? Well, you're going to sleep less. And sort of that's, that's also true. And I'm sort of not trying to get any sympathy, but it is true for me, you know, so I told you, I write from seven in the morning. That's really true. I also write when everybody's sleeping, mm -hmm. I stay up for two more hours in the evenings. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. I'm not making any, a judgment call here, you know, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging in any way. I, I just, an observation. it's an right. observation. It's a choice. I mean, it is true that now we can have it all, but having it all comes at a price and you have to be willing to pay that price, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and I think the mom's appearance, it changes. And so there are a couple of appearance changes throughout the story. The mom's though, is one of them where she starts out. We know, we know that prior to this year, she's been pretty and then she gets gray and she's not taking care of herself. But then by the end of the story, she's pretty again and she's dyed her hair back brown and her daughter, you know, seems quite pleased with that, that, you know, mom is back, right? Mm -hmm. She's back to her, her old self. She's teaching the kids Hungarian again. She's like left. She's gone back to part-time at work. Um, but it, it, what was interesting to me was some of the comments from Naji, from the, the grandmother character, 
about, she had all sorts of great, great little pieces of advice for Margit, but <laughs> uh, like, you know, I wrote down a few of them here. You have to keep men busy. Um, don't, <laughs> you have to put people to the test and then you have to keep looking out for cheating and be careful who you let close to you. You just can never be sure, which completely reminded me of my mom. She was always, I'll get back to that in a second. She was always saying things like this, but the one on the beauty Naji said at one point, you have to look beautiful, even if you're up to your elbows in dough. And that I thought was interesting. So my memories of Hungary and the time that I spent there and my cousins and family that I was around was, I mean, and this is a comment very specific to that culture, but that I, I always felt like beauty was so much of a commodity in that culture that the the cousins that I had, like that was a huge, off, a huge thing that they had to offer that they would really play up. And then as soon as they all got married, it seemed like overnight they were, you know, gray and had their hair in buns. I mean, it was just really fast, like the, these transformations. So it was interesting to, to see that thread in this story, like the thread of self-care, I would say. Uh, show up in the mom character. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think that that's an interesting observation. And I think that, um, you know, I think that sort of that there are different uh, expectations and different ideals and different degrees to which uh, women will take care of themselves in different cultures. And certainly in, in Hungary, women tend to take care of themselves uh, quite a bit, especially before marriage. Um, mm -hmm. after marriage, women do become the caretakers, right? They're the ones who sort of yeah. carry the whole, the whole family. And yeah, certainly. Um, but the, the quotation that you said with the, um, you have to make sure that you look pretty or nice, uh, even if you're up into your, up to your elbows in dough, that is a direct quotation from a friend of my mother's. And she, okay. said, that, she said that to me once uh, when I was visiting them, they live in Transylvania and uh, she's a very, very close friend of my mother's. And uh, um, that is a piece of advice that she really gave me. Uh, I was in my twenties back then. So that's stuff that, that, you know, it gets passed on sort of. And again, you know, there's, there's also all this advice that gets passed on about sort of how to keep a man and, <laughs> and so yes. it's, it's your responsibility to keep the man. It's, it's never a question of the man <laughs> keeping the Yes. <laughs> oh, I remember uh, my Hungarian grandmother telling me tr through a translator. So we had a, a language barrier, but she would say to my mom to tell me like, if you can't be a doctor, marry one. <laughs> and uh, I was like, why can't I be a doctor? So like, I mean, I was like, I just didn't understand it. But you know, that was the sort of advice that I would get. But also the, the sort of very cynical comments about like not trusting anyone, don't trust anybody. Um, <laughs> I definitely heard that from my mom a lot growing up. So, you know, it was really interesting. And I always thought of that as well, that's just my mom. So it was really interesting to read it in your story and think like, maybe this is more cultural than I realized, you know? So well, right. I mean, they, but they, you have to understand, I mean, sort of, I think you never lived through that. Um, I still lived in Romania as well, where you had to really be, be sure back then who you trusted because there was the secret police. So mm -hmm. amongst your neighbors, amongst your friends, there were the Securitatia who, who were looking for slips and slip ups, you know, sort of. Um, and so this idea of, um, 
I think it also extends to sort of my friends will tell you that I'm super loyal. And that actually, I think, comes also from cultural uh, uh, is due to culture because, you know, sort of by nature, if you if you have to be very careful who your friends are and be very careful that you're not betrayed, mm. then by by nature, you're also going to show that same same loyalty back to to those who, who support you. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The other character who I think changed a lot from an appearance perspective was Naji, right? So the grandmother character, when she shows up, she, she's dressed all in black. She looks like a witch um, <laughs> from Margit's perspective. And then throughout the story, she like literally and figuratively at the end turns into green, right? So you see this... Mm -hmm this role of color in the story that is also in the title, We All Fade to Green, where it, these different hues of green. So she's she starts off in all black and then it's forest green and then emerald and then olive and then a pear green. And she's she's changing, changing kind of before the family's eyes. And that seemed to reflect this like growth in the family. So you see the family as she's converting from this black into this green color and green, you know, very much the color of like life and vitality is um, you see the family coming together and healing, right? So this sort of change where with this cross-cultural generational um, coming together of the, the grandparents moving into the family in Kansas City, we see the the family happier, they're, they're playing together, they're, by the end of the story, like, there's just such a change in the overall kind of connection between the family, they're, they've got these, this little shop out front, and they're selling things together, and everyone's participating, and you see that, I think, reflected in Naji in that way. Can you just talk a little bit about, about that, and that decision to do that and the, how the, the role of color in the story? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, I, I hope, I hope, I aim, <laughs> I aimed to also produce a literary work. So I hope that it's also beautifully written. I hope, I hope it's well written. I hope it's poetic. And so there are these elements of that. I also aim to create a fairy tale um, atmosphere. So I didn't want to get too boggled down with facts I didn't want to be reduced to reality so mm. um, the characters are uh, mythical you know they're supposed to have these these superpowers kind of and they they you know you don't know throughout the story whether they're uh, witches or vampires or um, what powers they might have and I, I really wanted to have this this allure to them this 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 magical sides to them um, that's one um, and the colors um, also it was really important for me to not only to ask the difficult questions you know sort of what happens with our elderly relatives what happens with our families within our own family structures I mean if mom decides to work and keep the kids and let her parents move in and now she's falling apart what happens then and I think that a lot of families experience that um, where it becomes too much. 
And so I didn't want to sort of only concentrate on these difficult questions and then be weighed down by them. I think that life is hard enough. I wanted to create something light and I wanted to give some answers as well. And so I, I at the end, I portray a utopia um, and I try to sort of give people an idea of how it could be. Obviously, it, this is not reality and obviously it could never be translated 100% into what I, what I depict or what I portray in the, in the book. But certainly we could all aim towards that. And like, as you said, the community comes together, people focus on nature and on the environment and on, again, on the community and on their own family, on actually sharing together, on actually being together, on actually living and, and living life together. Um, like one of the things, for example, at the beginning of the book, uh, the kids are being driven from activity to activity because, of course, mm. they have to have a sport and they have to have a some sort of instrument that they play and they have to have this club and that club and da 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 da. And everybody's stressed by it and no one enjoys it. And at the end, they end up just playing sports outside and uh, doing things together. You know, singing together, playing uh, music together, anything like that. And so certainly the, the Nodi character, see, that's funny. It's, it's, it's funny for me to say Nodi and then not, not say character with, an, with a Hungarian accent. So the Nodi oh. character, <laughs> you know, it's really Nodi Korokted. <laughs> <laughs> so the Nodi character um, does grow and she sort of becomes superhuman. You know, she becomes this, I was playing with the idea of sort of ever after, you know, she's almost like a ghost. Mm -hmm. She's almost like a spirit already, you know, she's almost superhuman already. She's mm -hmm. almost just sort of universal. And so she, she changes these colors and she changes her clothing purposefully. She chooses to do that. And I think with that, I was trying to say that we all have a choice. We can all decide to dress in black or dress in green. <laughs> and um, yeah. and it, that's symbolic, obviously. We don't all have to go and get a green wardrobe, but uh, it's symbolic. And the Nodi character also grows and grows in her own thinking. Um, and with that, I think I'm trying to say also that even in old age, people are capable of making change within themselves and the way they perceive things the way they choose to live their last years the way the last mm -hmm. things they choose to do I think it's still absolutely significant Andre, I'm wondering if you could just read a little bit of the epilogue for us oh yeah sure let me wait a second I have my copy of the book here start with the end right <laughs> yeah let's do it Okay, so this is the epilogue, it's called Heavenly Call. And it's not really giving um, anything away because obviously um, the book is written from the perspective of the middle child and it's written, uh, it's never said clearly, but obviously it's written after the grandparents have passed. But I think we're led to believe that the grandparents stay with them for quite a long time. But the epilogue is, um, is cuts to the very end. So it's called Heavenly Call. My grandparents moved in with us when I was eight, and they turned our lives upside down. They came from a village in the Carpathian Basin and brought with them the power of age, ancestry, and legends. They were magical and mysterious and a beautiful enigma 
to the end. They lived with us and then they faded, answering a heavenly call from beyond. From wearing black to forest green and emerald and later the color of olives and pears, my grandmother faded toward the light, her white hair and translucent skin shining brightly. My grandfather did not fade, he jumped, freakishly strong to the end, with the hairs standing up straight on his head and his fluffy mustache. He laughed and twirled and lifted into the sky. But before they left, they made their mark. They touched us to the very core. Their spirit went into their only daughter, Anna, and into me and my brother and sister. But Nadia and Apu were giants in spirit, and there was more to go around. They had touched people throughout their lives, through their work and their connections back home in Transylvania. But their force became strongest at the end, freed from convention and worry. In the U.S., they taught us all to fade to green, to embrace life as a dream, and to discover magic in the midst of our everyday colors and in our hearts. So she's fading, right? So the Naji character is fading, like you're saying, into this almost spirit character. And you have this beautiful line at the end of the book that in the US, they taught us all to fade to green, to embrace life as a dream and to discover magic in the midst of our everyday colors in our hearts, which I loved. I thought it was so beautiful. The mm -hmm. Apu character didn't fade, right? He's very different. He jumped. <laughs> so why is he jumping? Well, I mean, also for dramatic effect, you're not going to have two <laughs> char characters developing the same way. But I think um, there again, um, they are based on my dear parents. I mean, my mother has become weaker and weaker and she used to be this little spitfire and um, she has throughout the years become slower and, and um, she has a lot of health problems. And so I, oh, it's very difficult for me to actually say that, but I see her fading. I see her slowly um, slipping away from us. Um, and I hope that she will be with us for many, many years to come still, but she is slowly fading. And my father um, has a completely different approach. He, he, he does jump. <laughs> he, mm -hmm. he fights it with tooth and nail, you know, he, he still, um, he climbs walls with our children. He, you know, he, 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 he refuses to give up on his youth. He, he, you know, sort of holds on to it. He works out, he goes for walks. And that is the character, this character who sort of is going to twirl and, and resist death uh, or, or resist mm -hmm. weakness in every way he can. Yeah, full of vitality, right? Full Throughout of the vitality story. to the end. So yeah, it was an interesting difference, right? Like, I mean, and, and just so beautifully put that this Naji fading and Apu just to the very end, he's not gonna fade, he's not fading anywhere. If he's gonna go, he's gonna, he's gonna leap. It's gonna be, you know, his own way. I mean, it was a really, I think, lovely way to just mm -hmm. contrast their characters. Thank um, you. <laughs> well, yeah, one thing I just wanna circle back to before we, we close here is, you mentioned the audience at the beginning, 
right? So I just want to go back to who, who the book is for, who you're thinking of for this. So it's written very much in this, the character of Margit, who's eight years old and in first person from her and her point of view on this family and this family coming together across culture um, takes place in the United States. But I think for anyone who has experienced like the living in different places or bringing together family members from different places, wherever it might be, I think would connect to that. But for you, who do you see as the audience that this book would, would connect with the most? Who are you writing it for? Well, I think, I mean, again, I, I initially, I, I wrote it for my family, you know, I wrote it for my parents and I wrote it for my kids. Um, but who I think would, would enjoy, I, as far as sort of the public is concerned, I think that Hungarian Americans would really enjoy this book. Mm -hmm. I think that sort Definitely. of, um, don't you think? I mean, I think um, Hungarian Americans are sort of first generation Hungarians or second generation Hungarians uh, would completely identify. There's just so much Hungarian-ness in the book and so much of that comes through. So, and I think also I, I am very proud of my heritage. So that's another thing that I really wanted to emphasize. So it is very much written for Hungarian Americans to show pride in this Hungarian Americanness, and this this also brings up a very interesting topic because um, you know what does that mean? What does Hungarianness mean? Because you know I was born in actually in Romania in Transylvania, so Hungarianness in the broad sense of the term. So I'm including everybody from Slovakia and Hungary and Romania, and sort of you know sort of. Uh, there are Hungarians, born Hungarians in, in more than just Hungary. Yeah, my mom was born in the Ukraine. Right, right, and, exactly. And raised, in, raised in Hungary. Yeah, right, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. So I think I definitely target Hungarian Americans. Um, and with that, I think I target all those who have a multinational, multicultural family. I think that it's not just Hungarian Americans who will identify with this. I think that anybody who comes from a multicultural family will uh, mm -hmm. recognize aspects of this, uh, you know, sort of this otherness, this this kookiness, this difference to to the to the norm. And and it doesn't really matter what the norm is, right? It's just the difference to it. The sort of comparison to it. I definitely thought of kids. Um, so I wanted to really include elements that would make the kids sort of sort of a young adult enjoy reading it. I also actually consciously took out some parts where I thought it was a little bit too dramatic for young adults. So um, again, no spoilers, but there is one scene that I was I was very sort of, oh, should I include that? And I ended up including it because I thought that young adults would not understand it as dramatically as the adults would. So, um, and I won't mm -hmm. say more than that. I think, you know, if you've read it, I think, you know, which mm -hmm. scene I mean, but I, but I consciously made sure, like, for example, there are no, there's no cursing, there's everything's beeps. <laughs> so there's a lot of cursing, <laughs> yeah. but it's all just beeps, you know, sort of. Um, so I targeted, I, I, I really thought of young adults reading it. So I, I included elements of you know, young romance and mm -hmm, yeah. sort of kids playing and issues in school and sort of friendships and things like that. And then if I really think of sort of uh, ideally who would buy this book or, or when would I be most proud, you know, <laughs> sort of, I think I see families reading together. And that's something that we do as a family. We read out loud. My husband and I started that tradition before we had kids. We used to read out loud to each other. And 
uh, the very first book we read to each other was Jonathan Safran Foer's Everything is Illuminated. I still remember us reading. So we took turns, my husband and I, reading to each other. And then, and we laughed and we cried. And sort of it was just a very, oh, it's, it's, it's peaceful and exciting and very communal. Um, so we kept that tradition and we continued to read to each other. So we pick a book and then we just kind of take turns reading it to each other. And this is something we do with the kids. And initially we just read to them. And now the older ones actually read as well with us. The little one, very little because she's too slow in reading. So, so it just <laughs> takes too long. But so, so with the book, I, I very much saw families just sitting down and, and reading together, um, several generations together. I think um, it would be so wonderful if people actually, you know, if I ever had that comment that, that, that sort of, I don't know, a family was sitting there with grandparents and parents and kids and reading it together, um, that would be very touching and that would be very uh, satisfying for me. And, and I guess one last thing is that I really, I mean, the environment is so incredibly important for me. And that was also a conscious decision to include the environment and sort of include a little bit of politics into it and, and, mm. and uh, in it and make a statement. And We Fate to Green is definitely also um, aimed at we should all fade to green. Uh, we should all take care of our environment and it is possible to live oh. more ecologically. And uh, yeah. Well, that, that makes sense with like the, the planting too. Like, so toward the end, you have the neighborhood growing things and kind of this little uh, farmer's market. So it's literally like growth from the ground, right? Right, right. So just one last thought on the, the audience. So you mentioned like you're thinking of people of Hungarian culture. I think the food for anyone coming from that environment, the food described throughout the story will definitely resonate. So hearing you talk about palacinta and sour cherry <laughs> soup and dumplings and uh, I was like, what's seltzer water with, you know, raspberry syrup and all these things. We're so, like every single one of them was familiar. I mean, and I, I didn't even, I mean, we never lived in Hungary. This was all just through my mom. So I think anyone who is coming from that background is going to very much enjoy these beautiful food descriptions that just run throughout the entire book in different ways. Just right. I mean, fabulous. you know, sort of in, in literature, everybody talks about uh, Proust's Madeleine. You know, it's not just Madeleine; it can also be Palacinto. <laughs> yeah, has, yeah. Palacinto needs needs a more prominent role in this world. I think. <laughs> I think I'm long, you know, sort of a long way from Proust, but you know, you, you can always <laughs> aim high. <laughs> well, I absolutely, I loved it. I mean, thank you for, for letting me read it so early and the, the chance to talk to you about it and for other people who want to find the book. So I read it on Kindle, um, which was great. Where, where else people find the book and find you on social media? I have actually taken it off of Kindle. I should maybe put it back on Kindle. I don't know. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm debating with the, with the, with this, with the concept of sort of, should we have electronic books or should we have paper books? And I, I think the future is electronic books and Kindle and things that you can read uh, digitally. I'm still a little bit traditional right now and sort of, 
fighting oh, it, fighting it a little, <laughs> fighting it a little bit, but at the same time, you know, sort of how I, how can I say that I'm sort of environmentally conscious and, and fighting, you know, not having printed books. <laughs> I mean, sort of, <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I'll just of- say like, yeah, for, for living here, uh, we're living in Argentina, as you know, and I, I wouldn't be able to get it here without Kindle. Right. Um, because then getting books mailed here is very unreliable. And so we'll say, yeah, and, and, and I see it and I, and I think it's, I, I agree and I agree with it and um, also with storage and with moving and things like yeah. that. Um, I just, yeah, I guess I just, I'm, I'm sort of a romantic, you know, sort of the, the, the thought of holding the book in your, in your hand no, and sort of leafing through the page. Yeah, it's a bit different, but um, so where can people get it? Um, the books um, can be ordered in any bookstore and, uh, or the book can be ordered in any bookstore. You can purchase it online, sort of on amazon.com or amazon.de, Amazon FR, everywhere on Amazon and also in your local stores. But for example, I know people in Germany are getting it through Talia, Talia.de. And if, you, if you're having trouble, because of course I'm not a known author, um, if you're having trouble uh, purchasing the book, you can get on uh, Instagram and it is at Quadil, so at Q-U-A-D-Y-L-L-E. And there all my books are listed and they are linked directly to the Amazon page. Um, you can also get on the Kulturéum website, which is my website, and there the books are linked as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Henriette. Thank you, Jane, for agreeing to interview me. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. I hope you all enjoyed it. This is Dr. J signing out.